said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. This is part two, and I'm just going to get straight into it for, for the sake of time. Um, if you want to chat to me about my trip and everything, I'm staying for lunch and, and I'd love to catch up. But I'm just going to jump into the message today for the sake of time, because there's a lot that I want to cover in a short period of time. This is part two of, a, of a, probably a four or five part you know, sermon, really, looking at the feasts and unpacking the feasts and how they find their fulfillment in Christ. So this is part two. We've already done part one. We did part one in the first week of December. And I'm not going to quiz you on it because I had to go back and revise to remember what I preached on. But what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at the the springtime feast. We've already looked at three of them, but there's four. And we're going to have a look at the final one. And if we could get the the slides up on the screen here, um, I'm going to show you very quickly on the screen. We'll go back to that slide to see if you can see this. These are the four feasts that fell in the springtime. So there were, there were two, I guess, seasons of annual feasts. There were the springtime feasts and there were the autumn feasts. And they all find their fulfillment of Christ in some way. So in the springtime feast, we have the Passover, the unleavened bread, and the first fruit feast. And they all go back to back to back. They are all interconnected and they're in close proximity to one another. And we looked at this at the first program that we did a number of weeks ago. And we found their fulfillment in Jesus. For the Passover, we found that the fulfillment in Jesus' life was that he died on the Passover or the Friday. The very next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we see that just as the bread had no leaven in it, in other words, that it would not rise, Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, fulfilling that feast in himself. And then the third feast, was, which was the Feast of first fruits, when Jesus rose from the grave, and many graves around him were opened as well, and they went to heaven, Jesus took them to heaven and presented them as a first fruit offering to his Father as his sacrifice was accepted. That's basically what we looked at a few weeks ago. Can anyone remember that? Kind of. The awesome thing about the sanctuary, guys, is the sanctuary gives you vignettes and opens windows by which we can see the gospel. It reveals to us many prophecies or fulfillments of what would happen in the life of Jesus as he ministered. And not just ministering here on earth, church, but as he ministers for us today in heaven. And I believe that these windows or or these snapshots of what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing paints a fuller picture of our understanding and comprehension of the gospel. You know, a number of, or last year, two years ago, I went to uh, the Waldensian Valley. It's a beautiful valley, if you've ever been there before. And as we went up the, 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 the valley to Torre Polici, and, and we climbed along the, you know, this little track through the trees, we found ourselves near a rocky outcrop, and in between the, the rocks was a crevice. And as we negotiated that small little opening in the rock face, we climbed through there, and then it opened up into a big cavern. Guess what happened in, those, in that cave, church? It's where the Waldensians would hide after they were persecuted or pursued by the Roman church. You couldn't see very much in there without a torch. But I tell you what, what was on the outside of that cave was beautiful. The valley, just the green trees, the the, the pristine river that ran down from the Alps. It was beautiful, but you couldn't see that inside the cave. I want to tell you something awesome about God. 
Although we live in a dark world, God doesn't just leave us in this dark world without giving us windows by which we can see him. Where the light may shine in, the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, God gives us windows, he gives us openings by which we can see him. And he doesn't just give us one. He doesn't just give us two. And he doesn't just give us three. He gives us snapshot after snapshot after snapshot after snapshot after snapshot. And I want to tell you something awesome. The picture that we see of God through the many different installments of God is an amazing picture. And that's why I believe very, very strongly that we should not just take one picture of God or one snapshot in the scripture, but that we should take the entirety of God's word and see the fullness of God unfold. But even beyond that, church, God cannot be contained in a book. He's infinite. How could a finite book ever contain him? And I'm looking forward to sitting at his feet in the kingdom made new and looking at greater snapshots, greater windows, greater vignettes of what God is. Are you looking forward to that, church? And the sanctuary itself is one of the mechanisms by which God teaches us who he is. And today we're going to be looking at the snapshot of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost happened a number of, of, of days, actually 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits just here. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Really, they embody the, the, the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus, these first three. But 50 days after that was the final feast of the springtime, which was the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. And so this was a special feast. And you probably know, you probably heard the word Pentecost before. As the disciples were in that upper room and as the Holy Spirit fell on them. That's in connection with the one that we're looking at today. All the Israelite men were required to come to Israel and were required to come to the temple at the Feast of Pentecost. It was their obligation to do so. And they would bring some of the fruits of their harvest to the temple to thank God for the provision of his hand and also to pray for rain to come. When we think of, I guess, the beginnings of the Christian church, our minds automatically turn to Acts chapter 2. As the disciples are ascended, or the apostles are ascended, descended on that upper room, and as they were there in humble reflection, humility of heart, seeking God and praying, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they had, they, they had a power that shook the room, and tongues of cloven fire appeared on their head. The glory of God was manifested in that place. We often think of that in Pentecost, don't we? But I want to tell you something this morning. Often we think of that and Pentecost, but we don't realise or we don't recognise that what was happening on earth was happening directly because something was happening in heaven. And we think of the power that happened on earth, but we don't follow that through and we don't see why there was such power happening on earth. There was something that was taking place in heaven that was significant and powerful. Now, I've got two points for my sermon today, and the first one is the Apostles at Pentecost, and the second one is Jesus at Pentecost. Both of them, both of the occurrences, both of the events are important. But I want to tell you that the one that happened in heaven, the Pentecost that happened in heaven, paved the way for the Pentecost that happened on earth. And the Pentecost that happened in heaven was more important than the one that happened on earth, because if that one didn't come first, then the one on earth wouldn't have happened at all. Does that make sense? So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. Verses 4 to 5. Acts 1, verses 4 to 5. And we're going to read this out for ourselves. 
This is Jesus speaking. He's instructing his disciples. He's about to leave them. He's about to go to his Father. And he's giving them final instructions. And in verse 4, he gathers them together. And this is what he instructs them to do. He says this. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What was the promise from the Father, church? What was the promise? What was Jesus continually telling his disciples would come after he left? The Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the Father. He then continues. He says, Which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In other words, what they had received of the Holy Spirit up to that point was nothing in comparison to what they would receive then. Imagine if I said to you today that what you have received of the Holy Spirit up to now is nothing in comparison to what you will receive when the latter rain falls. You think I'm being truthful? Imagine Jesus saying, all of your Christian experience up to this point has paved the way for the outpouring of heaven's blessings in such a way that you have not experienced before. You've been missing out. You're about to get something greater than what you could ever imagine or comprehend. It's about to fall on you. So Jesus says, wait. Wait in this room. And they went into that upper room and they prayed. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, you see the fulfillment of the instruction of Jesus as they take him at his word. In church, we should take Jesus at his word, not just at the best of times, not just at the most difficult times, but at all times. And they're in that upper, upper room and they pray. They've met the conditions of what Jesus has said. And guess what happens? It's something that changed the course of human history forever. And we read it here. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Where did it come from? It came from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the what? How full do you think they were of the Holy Spirit? They were all filled, entirely filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Would you have liked to have been there? Would you have liked to have witnessed it? Would you like to experience it? When I read my Bible, it tells me something. It tells me that this was the former reign, beginning the commencement of the Christian church, and that there will come a time in which God will pour out His Spirit yet again to greater effect, to finish His work, and we call that the latter reign. How exciting is it to know that the greatest days or years for the church is ahead of us? How exciting is it to know that you could be a part of that outpouring, that manifestation of the glory of God as the heralds go from place to place, town to town, village to village, proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ. How powerful would it be to know, to know that you could be an ambassador for Jesus, power from the unction from on high to go from here to there to everywhere to proclaim his name. 
How powerful would it be? Is it possible? Is it possible that you, sitting in those chairs, sitting in those pews right now, could be used by God to do something unimaginable? To turn the world upside down as they did. We have more means. We have more people. We seem to have more than what they had. But we're missing one thing. You want to know what it is? It's that which filled them. The Holy Spirit. We all have a portion up to this point, but we're talking about the greater portion that God promises will come to close this work off. Is, am I making sense here? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in its fullness. Now I said very earlier on that this promise of the Holy Spirit that was manifested here for the disciples, it was not something that was manufactured, it wasn't something that was manipulated, it wasn't something that was contrived, but it was heaven's gift to them. And this is the truth of Scripture. What happens in heaven shakes earth. Always. When Jesus does something in heaven... It always has consequences on earth. Whenever God does something, it's not just a ripple effect on earth. It's known. You know, um, when I was, when I just finished high school, you, may, you guys may remember this, there was a stimulus that went out, a stimulus package. You guys remember that? You might have got $1,000 in your bank account. Now, I just finished high school. I've never seen so much money in my life. The government had given me a blessing and it shook my world. I took that thousand dollars and I went straight down to the electrical store and guess what I bought? I bought it a TV. It's like, wow, the government's amazing. I'm going to vote for Kevin Rudd. That's probably part of the, the, the thought there. That's why we got the stimulus. And when we were just in America, the, the decisions that the government makes has implications and effects on society. You know, the, the government shut down when we landed in America. We didn't know what was going to happen. And this isn't a political message. I'm not wearing a Make America Great Again hat here. But I thought it was awesome because we got into national parks for free. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Leanne, you know. You have to pay like $30 per national park if you don't have to pass. And because the government shut down was there, we could just walk straight in. It was awesome. And I want to tell you something. The decisions... The movements of God, the actions of Jesus in heaven shake earth. And I believe that because I see that in Acts chapter 2. They weren't just sitting in that upper room praying for the Holy Spirit and God wasn't taking notice of them in heaven. He wasn't sitting in the corner twiddling his thumbs. Jesus was doing something in heaven. Something took place in heaven that resulted in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think I've said that enough. The question is, what took place? What shook the foundations of earth? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, verse 9. Because of Jesus' church, heaven and earth are inextricably linked by a bond that cannot be broken. Have you ever heard of Jacob's vision before or Jacob's dream? Do you remember what was in the dream? There was a ladder and there were angels. What were the angels doing? They were ascending and 
descending. And what were they descending and ascending on? The ladder. Who represents the ladder, church? Who is it? It's Jesus. And Jesus is that which binds heaven and earth with bonds that cannot be broken. He reaches into the upper echelons of heaven as God, fully God, fully divine. And he reaches down to the depths of humanity as fully man. And he bridges the gap. He bridges the gulf. And so when Jesus acts on high, it has implications on earth because he's bound to earth. And so whatever Jesus was doing in heaven had direct consequence with the Holy Spirit falling and filling the disciples. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 9, the question is this, well, what was happening in heaven? We need to understand the type, the Jewish sanctuary, in order for us to understand what was taking place in heaven. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 9, this is what it reads. Okay, let me give you a bit of context before I read it. The sanctuary system had not been set up yet. God had given the instructions to Moses. You can read that in the previous pages. He told them what to make, when to make, how to make it. And it had all been made and it had all been brought together. But before it could be used, something needed to happen. Before any sacrifice could be taken and before the blood could go into the sanctuary, something had to happen. Exodus chapter 40 verse 9. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. Before we can use the sanctuary, it must be set apart. It must be anointed. The altar, the laver, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the seven-branch candlestick, the Ark of the Covenant, everything that had been woven, everything that had been, been having into place, molded into place, had to be anointed before it could be used. Anointed with what church? Wasn't anointed with canola oil. Wasn't anointed with Castrol 50W10 whatever oil. It was anointed with olive oil. What is oil a symbol of in scripture? The Holy Spirit. Have a look at this verse on the screen I want to show you. In Daniel 9 and verse 24, this is the 70 week prophecy. Usually we associate as correctly with Jesus' ministry on earth. But there's an interesting passage in the very first passage of that prophecy where it talks about the fact that they would seal up the vision and the prophecy and anoint what? Anoint the most holy. What was anointed in heaven? If the sanctuary on earth was anointed with oil before the commencement of its ministry, wouldn't it make sense that there would be an anointing of the heavenly sanctuary before Jesus began his ministration as high priest in the heavenly courts above? Are you following me, church? Have a look at this for a second. This is really, really powerful. Was it just? Was it just the sanctuary that was anointed on earth before the commencement of ministry? Do you think it was just the sanctuary? Who was next? Who was anointed next? Jump with me to verse 12. Look at this. I hope that you get excited about this because I'm trying to bring this together and this is really powerful. Then you shall bring Aaron. Quick question, who's Aaron? What's his role? He's the high priest. You shall bring Aaron and his sons. So if Aaron is the high priest, his sons are the priests. So the high priest and the priest. 
to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. The sanctuary was anointed first, and then the high priest was anointed second, and then who was anointed third? And they were anointed with oil is a symbol of the... You see where I'm going with this? Jesus ascended to heaven. The heavenly sanctuary was open for business. He was anointed and set apart for ministry. As Jesus performed the ministration in the courts above. Hallelujah for that. Who was then anointed next? The high priest. Jesus was anointed next. And guess then who was anointed after him? His priests. Well, who's his priests? I've read this verse. But you, this is Peter. This is Peter who spoke at Pentecost. He understood this. This was not lost on him. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. They were his priests. They received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because Jesus had been anointed at high priest in the heavenly courts above and they knew that that was the fulfillment of the promise. They knew that Jesus was beginning a new phase. They knew that Jesus was glorified above and they were just waiting for the effects of that anointing in the heavenly courts. And it came, church, and it surely came with power and it radically transformed this world to the point that we can look back and we say, we do not know what the world would be if that had not happened. And do you believe that he could do it again? Do you believe that Jesus, our high priest in the courts above, could so empower his church to mobilize and to finish the work that he has called us to do. If this happened at the commencement of the ministry of the church at the very beginning, do you think that it will continue? Do you think that God will pour out his spirit again in the end to finish what he started? And do you believe that he could do it through you? Man. They're not the only priests. You're all priests. You're all sons and daughters of God and you belong to the King of kings and the lords of lords. And that means that this promise, that this reality which the disciples experience in an upper room is your experience if you would but ask. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That God has not left his church rudderless. That God has not left his church without power. But his church has promise. And the promise is based on the word of God which does not fail. And not just the word of God, church, but he who is the word of God, who fails not. And all the promises that Jesus makes are yes and amen in him. We are a royal priesthood for the express purpose of proclaiming the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous God. And as soon as the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples in that upper room like an atomic bomb, what was the very next thing that they did? 
they proclaim those praises. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, and you'll see the progression of this. It was not lost on Peter. Acts 2 and verse 33. He knew what was going on. Acts 2, 33 says this. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, what's the next word after he? He poured out this which you now see and hear. Poured. What does that communicate? Pouring out water? Sanctuary language, church, oil. The Holy Spirit oil has been poured out. In Psalms chapter 133, you can read this in your own time, there's a beautiful picture of, of the anointing of Aaron as the high priest. And it's, it's very, very representative of what was taking place in heaven. The first verse says this, and you'll see the links just here. It says, how blessed it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. In Acts chapter 2, where the brothers dwelling together in unity. And then after that, it said it's blessed. It's like the oil running over Aaron, the high priest's head, and dripping off his beard. It's kind of like Jesus is in heaven. He's been anointed as high priest. He's beginning his heavenly ministry. And the drops of oil have then dropped down into that upper room and radically transformed them forever. And I believe that there are drops of oil that will fall on individuals, on us as a church, as we seek God and humble ourselves before Him. I believe that God is able to do today what He did then. So you're probably thinking, well, what's the relevance for me in my life today? Maybe you are connecting to God, maybe not so much. Scripture teaches two periods of rain that would occur in the East. The former rain and the latter rain. The former rain was the preparation for sowing. The latter rain was bringing the crop to maturation, the crop to harvest. They both had important works to do. That which fell upon the disciples in that upper room that day was not the latter rain. It was the beginning of the Christian church. It was the former rain. The seed had germinated. The Christian message was going out. The church was born, so to speak. We are still waiting the latter rain. Look at this statement here. It says, in the east, the former rain falls at the sowing time. It is necessary in order that the seed may germinate. Under the influence of the fertilizing showers, the tender shoots spring up. The latter rain, falling near the close of the season, ripens the grain and prepares it for the sickle. The Lord employs these operations of nature to represent the work of the Holy Spirit. The latter rain, ripening earth's great harvest, represents the spiritual grace that prepares the church for the coming of Son of Man. When Peter speaks in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel, who talks about the former and the latter rain. He quotes it purposefully. The context of Joel, the passage that Peter is, is quoting, is a time in Israel where the locusts have eaten every single food available, where there is no pasture for the cattle, where there is prevalent drought, and there is no hope. But Joel calls for a season of repentance, prayer and fasting to heal the land and to bring on the rain. I always wondered, sounds a bit weird, like here he is quoting this Old Testament text, 
I understand the symbolism of the former and the latter rain. I don't understand the relevance of the broader context in Joel about the, the famine or the pestilence or the drought. But then I was thinking, I was thinking, you know what? You're not longing for rain if you're having too much rain. Uh, we experienced that when we had the flood. Nobody was like, yeah, I just want it to keep raining. You long for rain when you're not having enough. And when Peter was preaching for the latter rain, he had been filled, but he was looking forward to the day where more rain was still full. We preach about this church, and the reason that I preach about this is because I'm not content with the rain that I'm now receiving. I want more of an infilling from God. I want more of a revelation from God. And in all reality, church, the reason why it talks about the pestilence, the famine, the locusts, and everything associated with Joel, which is the text that Peter pinpoints in his Pentecost sermon, is because is it really any different for us? Locusts, famine, pestilence, disease. The Bible tells me that I am poor, miserable, blind, and naked, and I do not know it. There is a barren land that exists in my heart that needs to be filled by the grace of God. And if I am not humble enough to recognize that, then there is little God can do for me. God can work miracles, but if the heart is so prideful that it will not recognize its need for God, there is little that God could do. Reason why? Is because God would not force His hand on anyone. He draws people with cords of everlasting love. He does not force the will. He does not coerce. He will move heaven and everything else in order to win somebody to himself. But at the end of the day, if someone says no, then God is a gentleman and he says okay. God calls for us as individuals. It happens on an individual level and a corporate level. We see the corporate level in Acts chapter 2, but it goes beyond that. Individually, we need to humble ourselves before God and say, I will rend my heart and not just my garments. I'm not just going to come to church and put on a face and pretend everything's okay when I know deep within myself that everything's not. I'm not going to walk in those doors and say happy Sabbath when I have fought with the family on the way to church. I'm not going to be a hypocrite anymore. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to represent God. When the Holy Spirit comes upon me, I'm going to repent and I'm going to allow God to take my life, my entire life. This is why I think we often focus on the latter rain. We focus more on the glories of the latter rain than the conditions that we must possess in order to receive it. Is that a true statement, church? Who's ever been in the Sabbath school class where people are like, you just wait for the latter rain force? The victories, the gospel going forward, all obstacles that we're now presented with cast aside because God's taking charge of the ship. Well, God's already in charge of the ship. We don't like to talk so much about the humility, the prayer, the soul searching that took place before the Holy Spirit fell upon them. We don't like to talk so much about meeting, praying and fasting in earnestness, confessing our sins. To we don't like talking about that, but they're the very conditions that we need in order to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? But we like to talk about the glory, and the glory will come, but we need to possess the very conditions that allow us to receive the outpouring of God's grace. In that manifestation, we have all received portions to a certain point, but God wants to give us more. And if we are content with that which we now have, 
And I want to challenge you guys to get on your knees and pray God for a greater desire and thirsting and longing after more of Him. More about Jesus. More about Him. So, how do I close? I didn't really know how to close this sermon. I didn't really want to call you to decision. Which is weird, because preachers should call people to decision. The reason I didn't want to give you a way in which you can respond is because you guys know how you should respond. Man, I know how I should respond. And sometimes you hear messages and you're just like, man, I really need to make a decision. And then you walk out the back door and you're just like, what's for lunch? I want you guys to really consider where you are with the Lord. I really want you guys to consider were the Spirit to fall in that unrivaled power that we see in Acts chapter 2, would my heart be ready to receive it? Or have I erected barriers of pride that are putting a wall, a barrier between me and God? God is very good at bringing walls down. But you've got to let it. We have the same task. We have the same commission. We have similar obstacles. We have the same humanity. We have the same pridefulness. We have the same covetousness. We have all the same things that the disciples had. But we also have the same high priest. We have the same Jesus. We have the same promise. And what happened at the commencement of Jesus' ministry in the heavenly sanctuary will happen at the end of his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. He will finish this work and we will go home. I'm not going to get you to stand. I'm not going to get you to sing. I'm not going to get you to roll on the floor. I'm not going to get you to fill out the decision card. I'm not going to get you to come to the front. I'm just going to ask you a simple question between you and God. And the simple question is this. Are you willing? Are you willing to personally pursue the conditions necessary to receive the outpouring of God's grace in your life? It's a personal question. He does intercede on our behalf and that He is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to His children and a father is willing to give good gifts to His children. We have such a great God. Let's praise His name and ask for the manifestation of the things that He promised in our lives. This message was made available by the Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church.
was the Neblet family singing Purify My Heart. Coming up next, a song entitled In the Sanctuary. It's a production of 3ABN Music from their album Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 1. We have a high priest up in heaven. Hallelujah, oh hallelujah. He's our defender before the Father In a temple made by God, not man Behind the veil, in a place most holy Hallelujah, oh hallelujah Investigating He clears the record of those redeemed by His own blood. He's blotting out my sin in the sanctuary. He seals my bond with 
makes provision for me in the sanctuary. He's purifying heaven's temple. Hallelujah! Oh, hallelujah! In preparation. For his returning, for those who love and follow him, he's blotting out my sin in the sanctuary. He seals my
We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Ellen White didn't just provide instruction to the church and individuals in it, but she also received visions that dealt with real life issues and events in contemporary society in her day. She lived during the Civil War and received visions on this before and during the war. If we rewind a few years, we see that the Great Awakening was linked with the abolition movement. And in fact, all the early Adventist pioneers were abolitionists. The issue of slavery would come to a head in the Civil War and God would have his say on this terrible institution. South Carolina would be the first state to secede on the 20th of December, 1860. And 23 days later, Ellen White would have her first Civil War vision in Parkville, Michigan, here in this church. It's unlikely that she knew that in the three days before her vision, three more states would secede. But either way, it would be three months before the Civil War started when the Confederate forces fired on Fort Sumter in South Carolina after the Union forces had previously taken it over. The conventional wisdom in the North was that there would be no civil war, or if that there was, it would be extremely short with a quick victory for the Union. Ella White correctly predicted that there would be war, that there would be a long war, and that people in her audience that day would lose sons in the war. Her second Civil War vision happened here in the Roosevelt Seventh-day Adventist Church in New York State on August the 3rd, 1861. She was standing behind this very pulpit, though it would have been located on the other side of the church. She saw that slavery was a sin and that upholding it was in direct contrast to the teachings of Christ. She also saw that God was using the Civil War to punish both sides the South for practicing slavery, and the North for so long suffering its overreaching and overbearing influence. Perhaps most fascinating of all was her insight into the Battle of Manassas, sometimes called the Battle of Bull Run. On July the 21st, 1861, the Northern troops approached Manassas for the first time, expecting a swift victory as they were in the ascendancy. At one point in the battle, they were pushing ahead, when as Ellen White describes, an angel descended from heaven to the battlefield and waved his hand backwards. Instantly, there was confusion in the ranks. The Northern forces thought they were in retreat when it was not so in reality, but a retreat commenced. Lieutenant Colonel W.W. Blackford writing later says that the lines of blue that had been so well defined and unbroken suddenly became like a swarm of bees running away as fast as they could. Many American Civil War historians recognize a mysterious element in this battle, though virtually all understandably fail to see a supernatural element in its genesis. 
Today at the battlefield of Manassas, you can see the various plaques that dot the field that recount the sudden retreat of the Northern troops and an unlikely victory that was won that day for the South. Then her angel explained that God had this nation in his own hand and would not allow victories to be gained faster than he ordained. The North was not to be allowed to win a quick, decisive battle, thus bringing an abrupt end to the war, because it would be punished for condoning slavery before the war and also for not making abolition the principal ethical issue in the war. This vision shows how God involves himself in the affairs of men and does not stand idly by as we sometimes feel. The prophetic gift was given to address a major social and political issue of the day, showing the relevancy and practical side of it. Today there are some that say as Christians we shouldn't get involved in social issues but should just preach the gospel. But whilst preaching the gospel we should seek to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Some of the issues that have been around for centuries are still around in our day and as Christians we should seek to fight injustice and seek mercy for others. May our religion be practical and meet the needs of society, demonstrating the love of God wherever we are. To view more episodes in this series, visit lineagejourney.com. Hello, I'm Casey Butler, and I want to talk to you today about weeds, walls, and want. What was that you said? Weeds, walls and want. It's something that King Solomon observed and talked about. Now, who was King Solomon? Well, he was the son of King David in the Bible and he was given special wisdom by God. So much of it that throughout history he is known as the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon's life is characterized by in his early days being someone who was very faithful and true to God but he eventually turned right away from God in his life and then only towards the end of his life did he come back to God. He learnt a lot throughout his life. He wrote a number of books and he wrote also an extensive number of proverbs. Apparently he spoke 3,000 of them and many of them are recorded in the Bible in the book of Proverbs. It's interesting what a proverb actually is and the Oxford Dictionary defines it as a short well-known pithy saying that expresses a general truth or piece of advice and we are going to actually look at one of Solomon's Proverbs a little bit later. Solomon was very observant. You can tell from what he writes about that he observed many things in nature, you know, animals, um, agriculture, insects, the weather. He also observed things like tools and work. He observed the human body. He observed human behavior and relationships and wrote about and learned many lessons and important things about um, what he saw. And this brings us to when one day Solomon observed weeds, walls, and want. 
and it stood out to him so much that he recorded what he saw and then wrote what he learned from it. And we find this in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30 to 34. And it says this, I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of a man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Well, that's what he saw and that's what he learned from it. How did Solomon determine that this man was slothful? He says he went by the field of the slothful. Well, it seems plain that he he worked that out based on what he saw the condition of the man's living quarters were. You know, it's place all covered with weeds and the wall was in disrepair and just based on that the fact that it was so unkempt he was able to determine that this man who lived at this place was slothful and what else does he say he says void of understanding that means without understanding this man had you know just didn't quite understand what was really important in life so what did he think about all of this that he saw well he wrote a lesson carefully and what did he say a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of the hands to sleep so i guess in today's terms we could think of this as oh a little bit of laziness here a little bit of Uh, procrastination or um, just carelessness here and there yeah doesn't matter too much that's what would be the attitude that he is trying to um, convey and he is saying that eventually this kind of attitude will eventually catch up on a person he says so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth now if people if someone's traveling and they just happen to turn up at your place you would say that that came fairly unexpectedly wouldn't you so it seems like he's saying that when we when we have these habits of i don't know a bit of carelessness here a bit of carelessness there laziness here and there eventually trouble's going to end up catching up on us and it's going to come rather suddenly in a way that we don't expect and then he says also that thy want or thy thy poverty would come as an armed man now an armed man is someone who has a weapon and so and obviously then has the potential to do harm so we would think then that the poverty that comes or the trouble that comes to someone like this will actually harm them and you can you can imagine that if this man's house was all covered with weeds and if it's all covered with weeds probably food crops wouldn't have been growing so well so he may this this slothful man may well have gone hungry and that would have done him harm so that's how well that's just a, an ob- obvious example of how it could do this man harm 
So what can we learn from this about today? How, how can we apply this lesson in today's living culture? Well, let's think about our homes, our rooms, where we live. Do you think if Solomon came by your place today, would it look like the lazy man's field? Bits and pieces, unkempt everywhere and looking like it hadn't been touched for an awfully long time? Or is your place in order and organised and the impression that people see when they look on it is, oh, that place is well, well kept and up to date. What about your work habits? Do you, you know, miss bits here and there and maybe leave some jobs unfinished here and there and it just all seems to go like that in terms of your work ethic? What about wasting a bit of time here and there? Just being a bit careless in terms of how we spend our time. These kind of habits, according to Solomon, they can get us into trouble when we least expect because they all just add up on each other. You know, it's interesting that Solomon's little proverb here, his lesson that he learned from this experience about um, the lazy man, it's actually repeated in the book of Proverbs in another chapter. It's actually repeated in chapter 6. And it's in the context he's talking about the ant where it says go to the ant thou sluggard consider her ways and be wise which having no guide overseer or ruler provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest so here solomon has observed the ant and he sees how industrious and persevering the ant is he doesn't waste any time he just sets his mind on the task that it has to do and just keeps working hard till it's accomplished and then there's no poverty for the ant because he has meat for himself in the summer and food in the harvest and Solomon gives that as an example of what we can do instead of the lazy man and what he did so I encourage you to think about your life think about your habits and think about whether they are more similar to the lazy man with his weeds, walls and want or whether they are more like the ant with its diligent industriousness and wherever you find yourself to be go for the ant God bless thanks for listening this program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio